Today's episode is brought to you by Sons of Vikings. Sons of Vikings is an online store that features over 500 different Viking-related items, including jewelry, clothing, weapons, drinking horns, and more. Be sure to check them out at sonsofvikings.com and receive 10% off your order when you use the code VIKINGHISTORY. Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Before I introduce today's guest, I have two important things to tell you. First being, if you would be sure to write me a review, that would be uh, greatly appreciated because the more reviews the show gets, the easier it is for people to find. You can always feel free to contact me via my email address, which is noah at thehistoryofvikings.com, and I would be delighted to hear from you. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, and she is the Professor of Medieval European Literature at the University of Oxford, an official fellow and tutor at St. John's College. Her recent books include Winter is Coming, The Medieval World of Game of Thrones, as well as her translation of the Poetic Edda. Professor Caroline Larrington, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, hi, No, It's great to be here and great to be back on the show again. Yeah, well, I'm certainly very excited to have you. And I know your last interview, I got a lot of great feedback on that. And uh, a lot of people really enjoyed our discussion. But I'm very excited for our topic today. We're going to be discussing the end times in Ragnarok and Norse myth. And anybody who uh, listens to the show and is even somewhat familiar with Norse myth uh, understands that Ragnarok plays a very important role in uh, Norse mythology. But I guess my first question to you starting off our discussion today is, you know, what is the significance of Ragnarok in Norse mythology and how do we know of Ragnarok? Where do we get that from? Where, you know, um, what are the sources or what, who, who are the people that tell us of Ragnarok in Norse mythology? Okay, well, Ragnarok means the fate of the gods. And it's used as a kind of shorthand to describe the destruction of the world at the end of history. Though in a couple of texts, we find that, in fact, the world revives and begins all over again afterwards. And the most complete, coherent account that we have of Ragnarok is to be found in the Prose Edda by Snorri Sturluson. And he wrote that in around 1220. And, of course, he was a Christian writing from his own particular perspective. Snorri based his account of Ragnarok on an earlier poem, one called Verlespau, or The Seeress's Prophecy, which we think was probably composed around the year 1000. That is, around the time that Iceland was on the verge of converting to Christianity. And so those two sources, the poetic source of Verlespau and another closely related poem, and Snorri's prose account are the main sources we have. And of course, they're both written down in the Christian era. But we do have a couple of references in earlier 8th and 9th century poetry as well, or 9th and 10th, actually, I should say. And so it's fairly clear that the myth existed in some shape or form long before it was written down. Fascinating. Now, I'm, I'm curious, how did the, I'm curious as to how the Norse viewed Ragnarok and the end times. I mean, of course, it was the account was written down much later, but um, was this a form of poetry that they would have recited orally generation after generation, telling of the coming of Ragnarok? And was this something that they loathed and dreaded, you know, um, the day when the gods would clash and there would be this 
chaotic um, time and th- these great battles and you know fire and um, the great wolf Fenrir and is, was this something that they were fearful of or was it something I know in Christianity you know Christians to this day in, in the Christian uh, mythology um, sort of look forward to the day when Jesus will uh, come back to earth you know on, on his white horse and, and return but I'm curious <laughs> as to how the Norse viewed the end times Hard to tell because we don't really have any independent evidence of what pre-Christians thought about the idea of Ragnarok, apart from these two fairly early poetic references. And in both cases, the um, the context is that a great king has died, Eric Bloodaxe has died, or Haakon the Good, ruler of Norway, has died, and the kings are being welcomed into Ragnarok. Uh, into, sorry, into Valhalla. And uh, one of the heroes already there asks Odin why he has summoned Eric to Valhalla, why he has caused him to be defeated in battle. And Odin says, well, the grey wolf is looking at the homes of men. So it's clear that the end times are coming and Odin needs all the help that he can get in order to fight on the sides of the gods when that day comes. So it's certainly part of a a poetic conceit to suggest that there's a reason why kings are defeated in battle, even though they've been fortunate, or you might think that right in some way was on their side. And we also have some carvings, um, one in the Isle of Man here in the UK, which depicts Odin being swallowed up by the wolf. And we have something at the Gosforth Cross as well. But it's not clear from depictions in stone, what people felt about it, simply that that idea of Odin being swallowed up by Fenrir was a really well-established part of the belief of the events that were going to happen on that day. Interesting. Now, I'm, I'm curious as to what is the mythic cycle and, you know, this sort of view as all of the stories and, and myths in within the you know Norse mythology being a, a, a gigantic cycle that keeps on spinning and spinning. And was this something that the Norse were aware of? Were they? Did they? I mean, it's. I guess it's probably impossible to tell as well. But I'll just ask anyways. Um, did they view time as something that? Um, was part of a cycle, if you know what I'm getting at. And, and um, Ragnarok would come, but then eventually the great Ash, Yggdrasil, would be reborn again. Was that something that they were aware of or thought about? Well, it's it's not clear what they thought about time as a cycle, because all the evidence we really have is in the, these couple of poems and the prose. But there certainly is a a strong suggestion that once the earth has been destroyed, it will rise up again out of the sea, just as it did when it was first created in one of the creation myths. And so everything will start up again. And the the son gave birth to a daughter before she was destroyed, and the daughter will ride through the skies again. The second generation of gods who don't die at Ragnarok come back and inhabit some of the halls that um, have somehow survived. And it's not at all clear that Yggdrasil, the the great world ash, is destroyed in Ragnarok. It certainly totters and groans, and maybe some of its branches catch fire. But we're told that the surviving humans are are hiding in a a grove of trees, which sounds as if it may be closely related to Yggdrasil. 
So there may be a kind of um, stability that persists all the way through time that collects around the, the myth of Yggdrasil. So it's entirely possible, I think, that Norse people believed that the world would come to an end one day, but it would be reborn and start up maybe in pretty well exactly the same way as it functioned before with um, the forces of good and the forces of evil or the, the forces of the gods and the forces of the giants maybe always continuing to return in the cycle. But it's not clear in the, the stories that we have that the giants do actually come back in the new world. And the one kind of disturbing thing is at the end of the poem Burlespau, the dragon Nithurga, corpse striker, which we might have expected to have been wiped out in the great conflagration, he turns up. And so there is maybe a suggestion that forces of decay and destruction are built back into the new world, just as they were in the old. Interesting. Now, I'm, another question that I have is, you know, it seems as though in the story of Ragnarok in the end times that um, the gods cannot do anything to prevent their predestined fate. That is, you know, there's all these um, great battles between Thor battling the Midgard serpent and Odin um, battling the great wolf Fenrir and um, Heimdall and Loki. And a lot of, I, I think many of the gods die. And this is something that they're aware of, isn't it? But who told the gods of Ragnarok? And if they do, how do they attempt to prolong or even avoid it? Well, there are, I guess, a couple of means by which they they try to skirt around the question. Um, one thing to say at the outset is, I guess, it's interesting that the gods are subject to fate. They can't make fate. They can't alter their own fate. And it seems clear that it's Odin who is the most concerned, because he's the wisest of the gods and the most knowledgeable, about the unfolding of the events which will lead to Ragnarok. In the poem Verlespau, he asks questions of a prophetess who seems to be of giant kindred. And so she remembers the very far past and she can see forward into the future. And it's she who tells him all about what's going to happen. But we can see in at least one other poem, um, one known as Vathruthnismal, or the speech of Vathruthnir, that Odin goes to visit a very wise giant and engages in a wisdom contest with him. And the wisdom contest is designed in some ways to find out what the giant knows, first of all about the ancient past, but also to see if the giant knows what Odin knows about the future. Or is it possible there's some kind of alternative narrative? Maybe Ragnarok doesn't have to happen. Maybe the giant knows a different story in which everything is absolutely fine. But when Odin goes to, to ask the giant Vathrudnir what he knows, it confirms the story that Odin kind of knows himself already and fears. And that is that Ragnarok is definitely coming. And the Norse myths as we have them, and it's not always easy to sew them all together into coherent narrative structure, nevertheless do give us a sense that there are certain signs that Ragnarok is on its way. 
Um, the earliest of these, of course, is the, the binding of the children of Loki, because Loki is the father of both the, the Femris serpent and the Mid sorry, the Femris wolf and the Midgard serpent. And it's clear that the gods have to bind the great wolf Fenrir and cast the serpent in the sea in order for them to come back at Ragnarok and attack the gods. And it's clear, too, that Loki has to be bound in a cave with serpents dripping poison over his face, uh, a punishment that he gets for his role in the, the death of Baldur. And, of course, Loki has to be bound in order to free himself from his bonds and lead the giants into the battle. And, of course, Baldur himself, the brightest and the best of the gods, has to die before Ragnarok can come about. And so when each of these things occurs, Odin has a sense that the end of the world is getting closer and closer. And there's very little he can do to forestall it. Um, all he can do is just verify, must it happen? Is there any way of stopping it? And the answer to that is, is pretty well always no. Interestingly, from the human point of view, we'll know when Ragnarok is coming because the weather will be terrible. And we'll have the mighty winter, as it's called, the Fimbulvetter, where there's no summer for three years and winter just runs straight into winter with ice and snow and howling winds driving from the east. And this will cause a kind of breakdown in human society so that brothers kill brothers and all kinds of promises and oaths of loyalty are, are not kept. And so when morality really goes downhill, then we know that we're in the region of the end times. Hey guys, before we hear more from Professor Caroline Larrington, I want to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, Sons of Vikings. Sons of Vikings is an online store that features over 500 different Viking-related items, including jewelry, clothing, weapons, drinking horns, and so much more. The owner of Sons of Vikings, Kurt Neuer, is both Danish and Irish and takes great pride in his Nordic and Celtic heritage. They also have an amazing blog with some excellent articles on Viking history. In fact, if you Google various search terms relating to Viking symbols or Norse runes, you'll probably find one of their articles ranking at the top. Their Nordic and Celtic jewelry ranges from affordable items for under $20 to their higher-end line of hand-forged jewelry made of steel, brass, bronze, and sterling silver. Be sure to check them out at sonsofvikings.com and receive 10% off your order when you use the code VIKINGHISTORY. Again, that's sonsofvikings.com and receive 10% off your order today when you use the code VIKINGHISTORY. Now on with the show. So when you study and read the Norse myths, is there this sense of everything is leading up to Ragnarok, every myth, every... I get yeah. Story is is leading up to Ragnarok, and is as though the end times are sort of the climax of of Norse mythology. Um, that's one way of looking at it. But in fact, there are quite a few myths which take place in a different kind of mythic time, and it's not clear that we can arrange some of these myths in a sort of chronological order. So, for example, the myth of getting the meat of poetry. 
Um, does that happen quite early or does that quite happen quite late in mythic history? We don't really know um, in one way because Odin steals the, the mead of poetry from the giants. It's just one more reason why the giants might be annoyed with the gods and want to attack them. But we don't have a sense exactly that that's uh, a major step on the, the road to Ragnarok. So I think it's probably a bit misleading to see all of the surviving myths are somehow inexorably leading up to Ragnarok. But there's certainly a kind of um, dark thread, if you like, that runs through some of the myths, which foreshadows or has a kind of causal relationship with the events of Ragnarok. Yes, that, that's, that's an interesting way of looking at it, and I think you're right. I think I could see how that would be misleading. Now, one thing that I've been very excited about recently is uh, I've always loved Norse mythology and always loved reading the sources that we have, the Eddas and stuff. But I've really been uh, just sort of in my personal life been uh, digging deep into other sorts of medieval literature and, and other mythologies. But do the events of Ragnarok and the end times in Norse myth have any influence over... I guess any notable medieval literature or even later literature, uh, Tolkien, Lewis, or even the other mythologies that we see, uh, Celtic, uh, Finnish, uh, anything like that? It would be hard to argue, I think, that the Norse myth of Ragnarok is really well known enough outside the Scandinavian north and the medieval period to to influence anybody very much. It's just possible that the story of Baldur has some relationship with the story of Lemminkainen in the in the Kalevala, since both of them are stories about the the young, beautiful young man who dies an untimely death. And to ask some questions about why it is that the good and the beautiful must die. But direct influence in the medieval period, no, I don't think so. Um, the most important uh, traces of Ragnarok in the more modern period, of course, are in Wagner's Ring Cycle, where Goethe Demerung, the Twilight of the Gods, which is the way in which uh, Wagner understood one of the terms that Snorri Sturluson uses for the, um, the end times. Uh, the destruction of the world of the gods when the Rhine rises at the very end of the opera cycle ushers in a time where the gods are no longer needed, but it doesn't necessarily destroy the whole human world. And Tolkien, of course, who knew his Norse myths very well and who also loved Wagner, talks a little bit in his essay, Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics, about the, the strange melancholy which haunts northern literature exactly because the Anglo-Saxons and the Scandinavians seem to have had in their heads the idea that at the end of time, the dragon will come in some shape or form. It certainly comes for Beowulf in the Old English poem, and it causes his death. And Tolkien, I think, is very good at conjuring up that sense of a kind of melancholy looking forward into a future that can only get worse. Lewis, Lewis, of course, is more buoyed up by Christian mythology. And so when he comes to the last battle, the last battle is very much between the forces of good and evil, but it's so strongly inflected by the Christian idea of a heavenly afterlife living with Aslan 
that in some ways the, the kind of tragedy and darkness is rather lost, I think. And of course, um, most recently, George R. R. Martin's The Song of Ice and Fire draws a great deal of its inspiration from the idea of Ragnarok, the idea that um, the world will go up in flames, but it will also go up in ice as well, or go down in ice, if you like, that those two irreconcilable forces of ice and fire are going to meet and clash, and that will destroy the world as we know it. Now, quite where George Martin is going with that is, of course, hard to tell since the last two books remain unpublished and unwritten. And it may be that his entire cosmos gets wiped out, though I rather suspect it won't. And there will be an almighty battle, but somehow, just as in the Norse myths, the humans will pick themselves up and the survivors will creep out of the wreckage in a kind of dazed way and then start rebuilding. So, and one thing you mentioned that was very interesting is, I'll just take Christianity for an example because it's the most blatant, I think, but you, there's definitely this sense of good versus evil, you know, um, sort of Jesus and um, the heavenly hosts and angels versus um, Satan and his, and his demons, but you don't really see that in Norse mythology, or do you? It's not really a struggle between good and evil. It's I don't know how you would describe it, really. I mean, what are the order and chaos, good and evil, what are sort of the clashing forces in Norse myth? You might want to talk about order and chaos, I guess. Um, you might want to talk about culture and nature, though I think it would be unfair to the giants to suggest that they don't have any culture. Um, it might be a clash between the ancient inhabitants of the universe and the incomers, if it it turns out to be the case that the um, there's something about the giants which represents the original Scandinavian population and that the worship of the Norse gods, the Aesir, is connected with the migrations in Scandinavia in the age of migrations from, from further east in the Eurasian continent. Um, but to say the gods are good and the giants are evil, I think is probably to use the wrong kind of grid or framework because the gods are morally compromised in all kinds of ways by the time Ragnarok comes. In particular, when it comes to making and breaking oaths. And the giants are a difficult sort of people to live close by to. But at the same time, the gods provoke them in all kinds of ways, steal their treasures. Um, and the giants are always trying to reclaim what they've lost or trying trying to get one up on the gods. So it's a kind of eternal struggle, not though between good and evil, but between um, two opposed principles which configure different kinds of things. Now, and another question, and I suppose this is the, the last question I'll ask you, but, you know, the, the giants or the, the Jotnar, as they're called, in Norse myth, how are they... How are they described? Are, are the giants as, you know, are the giants envisioned as being, you know, like we might, um, like we might perceive a giant nowadays, these monstrous nine foot tall towering beasts that sort of lumber through life? Or are the giants just a different species of, of God? How did the, how are the, like, who are the giants in Norse mythology? 
Well, the giants are the original inhabitants of the, the universe, and the gods themselves are descended from the giants. And their size and shape is, is rather variable. Giant women can be very beautiful, and the, the god Freyr falls in love with a giant woman whom he sees far off, and she has beautiful white shining arms. So there's no question of her being nine foot tall and monstrous. And when Freyr's messenger goes to woo her, he threatens her with being married off to a three-headed frost giant. And clearly, if you're a giant woman, you would think, well, you know, three-headed frost giants are kind of within the normal parameters of what you might expect to get married to. But she clearly doesn't want to marry a three-headed frost giant. So... The, the size of giants is something that's very variable. Sometimes they can blow themselves up to be big. Sometimes they're just the same size as the gods, and the gods and the giants can intermarry. So there's no real size goal there. And giants can be um, attractive, good-looking, quite civilized and courtly. They keep blocks of animals. They have goats and cattle. They go off fishing. Um, they work slightly harder for their living than the gods do. The gods tend to sit around in their halls, ruling rather than working. Um, but the gods, the, the, the giants themselves, do seem to represent a kind of um, slightly lower order of being in the universe because they aren't rulers. They have to do, in a sense, what the, the gods tell them quite a lot of the time. But bestial, ugly, horrible, only some of them, and only sometimes. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, Professor Caroline Larrington, thank you so much for joining me uh, for a second time on the show today. It was just, uh, this was something I've been looking forward to for quite some time, and uh, I always enjoyed the discussions that I've had with you. So thank you so much for joining me today on the History of Vikings. It's been a great pleasure, and I look forward to talking again. I'll be sure to put a link to uh, Professor Larrington's translation of the Poetic Edda, as well as her book on Game of Thrones and her uh, book on Norse myth, The Norse Myths, A Guide to the Gods and Heroes. If you enjoyed the history of Vikings, do be sure to write me a review or feel free to reach out to me. Noah at thehistoryofvikings.com is my email. Thank you all so much for listening and uh, tune in next week right here on the history of Vikings.